community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. And thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, and streaming live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. My name is Bruce, and this is a special two-hour Christmas show. So Merry Christmas to everyone out there this morning, and nice to be here this morning from 10 until noon. I usually try to book this two-hour slot to reach out a bit to my family, far too far away uh, for me to be there, but I can at least do it a bit this way. So Merry Christmas out there to those of you. Uh, I've uh, been doing this, I think, for maybe the, like the last six years, and usually playing a selection of seasonal and Christmas music, but doing something a little bit different this year. I'd attended an annual and seasonal event at the Spire in both 2016 and 2017 and loved it. And I was planning to attend this year again anyway, but when they asked if CFRC might be interested in recording and perhaps airing it, I I jumped at the chance. Uh, That event is their yearly dramatic reading of a Christmas classic And so what you're about to hear for the next approximately 80 minutes is an adaptation of the Charles Dickens novella as a dramatic reading that was performed on December 9th at the Spire. And reading in that event were Peter Aston, Michelle Mellon, Donald Mitchell, William Mitchell, Adele Mitchell, Wendy Luella Perkins, and Charlie Walker. Now, this is a two-act as-read play, and I will interrupt only once and very briefly for station ID with a mention of uh, the play itself and, again, the actors. And then following the conclusion of the play, I will air with only a slight pause, a single short instrumental piece that I felt might be good uh, to happen immediately after. So when that is completed, I'll be back with a review of what you just heard. And uh, the remainder then of this two-hour show will be filled with a bit of seasonal music I've selected. So let's begin. Here again, a two-act adaptation is a dramatic reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, as performed by Peter Aston, Michelle Mellon, Donald Mitchell, William Mitchell, Adele Mitchell, Wendy Luella Perkins, and Charlie Walker. Of course he did. 
How could it be otherwise? Scrooge and he were partners for I don't know how many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole assign, his sole residuary legatee, his sole friend, and sole mourner. Scrooge never painted out old Marley's name. There it stood, years afterwards, above the warehouse door, Scrooge and Marley. The firm was known as Scrooge and Marley. Sometimes people new to the business called Scrooge Scrooge, and sometimes Marley, but he answered to both names. It was all the same to him. Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red and his thin lips blue. He carried his own low temperature always about him. He iced his office in the dog days and didn't thaw it one degree at Christmas. External heat and cold had little influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him. Foul weather didn't know where to have him. The bitterest wind, heaviest rain and snow and hail and sleet could boast of the advantage over him in only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. But what did Scrooge care? It was the very thing he liked. Nobody ever stopped him in the street. He edged his way along the crowded paths of life, wanting all human sympathy to keep its distance. Once upon a time. Of all good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy with all. And the city clocks had only just gone three, but it was getting quite dark already. It had not been light all day. The door of Scrooge's counting house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who, in a dismal little cell beyond, a sort of tank, was copying letters. Scrooge had a very small fire, but the clerk's fire was so very much smaller that it looked like one coal. But he couldn't replenish it, for Scrooge kept the coal box in his own room. And so surely, as the clerk came in with the shovel, the master predicted that it would be necessary for them to part. Wherefore, the clerk put on his white comforter and tried to warm himself at the candle, in which effort, not being a man of strong imagination, he failed. Scrooge's nephew Fred came into the room so quickly that the first intimation Scrooge had of Fred's approach was the cry of his cheerful voice. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Bah, humbug. Christmas, a humbug, Uncle. You don't mean it, I I am sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? (laughs) Come, poor enough. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Bah, humbug. Don't be cross, Uncle. What else can I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. What's Christmas time to you but a time for paying bills without money? A time for finding yourself a year older but not an hour richer? And a time for balancing your books and having every item in them through a round dozen of months presented dead against you? Merry Christmas. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes around with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding. 
and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. He should. Uncle. Nephew. Keep Christmas in your own way, and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Well, let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good has it ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of, of, of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not a, another race of creatures bound on other journeys. And, and that therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it! Let me hear another sound from you, and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I'll see you dine in... Begant. But why? Why? Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love. Good afternoon. Hey, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Uh, why give it as a reason for not coming now? Good afternoon. I, I want nothing of you. I, I ask uh, nothing of you, and I... Why can we not be friends? Good afternoon. I'm sorry with all my heart to find you so resolute. We have never had any quarrel to which I have been a party, but I have made the trial an homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humor to the last. So Merry Christmas, Uncle. Good afternoon. And a Happy New Year. Good afternoon. His nephew left the room without an angry word notwithstanding. He stopped at the outer door to bestow greetings of the season on the clerk who, cold as he was, was warmer than Scrooge. But he returned them cordially. And there's another fellow, my clerk, with 15 shillings a week and a wife and family, talking about a merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. The lunatic clerk in letting Scrooge's nephew out had let another person in, a business type, pleasant to behold, with books and papers in hand, who now stood with hat off, bowing to Scrooge. Scrooge and Marley's, I believe... Uh, have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead these seven years. He died seven years ago, this very night. I have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. At this festive time of year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at the present moment. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries, and hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? Well, plenty of prisons, under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body to the multitude. Well, a few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink, 
the means of warmth. We choose this time because it is a time of all others when want is felt keenly and abundance rejoices. Now, what shall I put you down for? Nothing. Oh, you wish to be anonymous. I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help support the prisons and the union workhouses. That costs enough. Those who are badly off must go there. Well, many can't go there, and and many would rather die. Well, if they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Besides, excuse me, I don't know that. But you might know it. It is not my business. It is enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Mine occupies me constantly. Good afternoon. Seeing clearly that it would be useless to pursue the point, the business person withdrew. But let the owner of one scant young nose, gnawed and mumbled by the hungry cold as bones are gnawed by dogs, into the office. Humbug! Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror. Whereupon, Scrooge resumed his labors with an improved opinion of himself and a more facetious temper than was usual with him. At length, the hour of shutting up the counting house had arrived. With an ill will, Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to the expectant clerk in the tank, who instantly snuffed out his candle and put on his hat. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose? If quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I was to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It's only once a year, sir. A poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. But I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier next morning. Yes, sir, I will. The office was closed and crinkling, and the clerk, the long ends of his white uh, comforter dangling below his waist, for he boasted no great coat, went home to Camden Town as hard as he could run to play at blind man's buff. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and, having read all the newspapers and beguiled the rest of the evening with his banker's book, he came home to bed. He lived in chambers, which had once belonged to his deceased partner. It was old enough now, and dreary enough, a gloomy suite of rooms, for nobody lived in it but Scrooge, the other rooms being all let out as offices. It is a fact that there is nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door of this house, except that it was very large. Also, that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence in that place. Also, that Scrooge has as little of what is called fancy about him as any man in the city of London. Let it also be borne in mind that Scrooge has not bestowed one thought on Marley since his last mention of his seven years dead partner earlier that afternoon. And then let anyone explain to me, if you can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but Marley's face, with the dismal light about it. 
The face was not angry or ferocious, but it looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up upon its ghostly forehead. As Scrooge looked fixedly after this phenomenon, it was a knocker again. Humbug. Up Scrooge went, not caring a button for it being very dark. Darkness is cheap, and Scrooge liked it. But before he shut his heavy door, he walked through his rooms to see that all was right. He had just enough recollection of the face to do that. Quite satisfied, he closed his door and locked himself in, double-locked himself in, which was not his custom. Thus, secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers, and his nightcap, and sat down before the very low fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed. Nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth from such a handful of fuel. His color changed, though, as the face of Marley, seven years dead, swallowed up his thoughts. Humbug. Scrooge heard a clanking noise. Deep down below. As if some person were dragging a heavy chain. Cellar door flew open with a booming sound. And then he heard the noise much louder. On the floors below. Then coming up the stairs. Then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still. I won't believe it. Scrooge threw his head back in the chair, his glance resting on the heavy door as Marley passed into the room before his eyes. The same face, the very same. Marley, in his pigtail, usual waistcoat, tights, and boots, his body was transparent and wound with a long chain made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds, and heavy purses wrought in steel. Though Scrooge looked the figure of Marley through and through and saw it standing before him, and though he felt the chilling influence of the death-cold eyes and marked the kerchief bound about the head and chin of the phantom, Scrooge was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now? What you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? Your particular, for a shade. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you... Can you sit down? I can. Do it then. You don't believe in me. I don't. What evidence would you have of my reality beyond that of your senses? I don't know. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a a crumb of cheese, a a fragment of an underdone potato. (laughs) There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Humbug, I tell you. (laughs) The spirit raised a frightful cry and shook his chain with such a dismal, appalling noise 
that Scrooge held on tight to his chair to save himself from falling into a swoon. But how much greater was his horror when the phantom taking off the bandage round his head, as if it were too warm to wear indoors, his lower jaw dropped down upon his breast. Mercy! Dreadful apparition! Why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they trouble me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it's condemned to do so after death. I cannot tell you all I would. A very little more is permitted to me. I cannot rest. I cannot stay. I cannot linger anywhere. My spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me. In my life, my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. And weary journeys lie before me. Seven years dead and traveling all the time. You travel fast. On the wings of the wind. You might have got over a great quantity of ground in seven years. Oh, captive. Bound and double ironed. You are fettered, Jacob. Tell me why. I wear the chain that I forged in this life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Or would you know the weight and the length of the strong coil and bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago, and you have labored on it since. It's a ponderous chain, Ebenezer. But Jacob, old Jacob Marley, you were always a good man of business. Business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Hear me, my time is nearly gone. I will. But don't be hard upon me. Don't be flowery, Jacob, pray. I'm here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. A chance and hope of my procuring, Ebenezer. You were always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. Is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. Why? Well, I think I'd rather not. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. Couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second at the hour of two. The third when the last stroke of three has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me no more. And look that for your own sake you remember what has passed between us. When he said these words... The specter took his wrapper from the table and bound it round his head as before. The apparition walked backward, and at every step he took, the window raised a little more, so that when the specter reached it, it was wide open. Scrooge followed to the window and looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in the restless haste, and whether these creatures faded into the mist, 
or mist enshrouded them, Scrooge could not tell. But they faded, and the night became as it had been when he had walked home. Scrooge closed the window, and being from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or his glimpse of the invisible world, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, went straight to bed, half undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. When Scrooge awoke, it was so dark that, looking around, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavoring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of the neighboring church struck the hour with tremulous vibrations. To his great astonishment, the heavy bell went on from six to seven, and from seven to eight, and regularly up to twelve then stopped. Twelve. It was past twelve when he went to bed. The clock was wrong. An icicle must have gotten into the works. Twelve. Why? It is impossible that I can have slept through a whole day and far into another night. And it is impossible that anything has happened to the sun. And this is twelve noon. This thought, being an alarming one, he scrambled out of bed and groped his way to the window. He was obliged to rub the frost off with the sleeve of his dressing gown before he could see anything. All he could make out was that it was still very foggy and extremely cold and unquestionably night. Scrooge went to bed again and thought and thought and thought it over and over and could make nothing of it. Perplexed, he resolved to lie awake until the hour had passed. The quarter was so long that he was more than once convinced he must have sunk into a doze. A quarter past, half past, a quarter to it. The hour itself, and nothing else. He spoke before the hour bell had finished sounding its deep, dull, hollow, melancholy one. Light flashed up in the room upon the instant, and the curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and Scrooge, starting into a half-recumbent attitude, found himself face to face with the unearthly visitor who drew the curtains. It was a strange figure, like a child, yet not so like, um, not so like a child as like an old woman viewed through some supernatural medium, which gave her the appearance of having receded from the field and being diminished to a child's proportions. Its hair which hung about its neck and down its back was white, as if with age, and yet the face had not a wrinkle in it. It wore a tunic of the purest white, and round its waist was bound a lustrous belt, the sheen of which was beautiful. But the strangest thing about it was that from the crown of its head there sprung a bright, clear jet of light by which all this was visible. I beg your pardon. Are you the spirit? whose coming was foretold to me. I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Well, what brings you here, spirit? Oh, your welfare. I'm much obliged, but I can't help thinking that a night of unbroken rest would be more conducive to my welfare. What? Well, your reclamation, then. Spirit, I intend no offense. Take heed. Rise and walk with me. I am mortal and liable to fall. Bear but the soft touch of my hand. 
There. And you shall be upheld in more than this. The spirit laid its hand upon Scrooge's heart as these words were spoken. They passed through the wall and stood upon an open country road with fields on either hand. The city had entirely vanished. Not a vestige of it was to be seen. The darkness and the mist had vanished with it, for it was a clear, cold winter day with snow upon the ground. The spirit gazed upon him mildly. Its gentle touch, though it had been light and instantaneous, appeared still present. Scrooge was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each one connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. Good heaven! I was bred in this place. I was a boy here. Why, I, I recognize every gate and, and post and tree. Oh, then you recollect the way. Remember it? I could walk it blindfolded. Strange to have forgotten it so many years. Oh, spirit, I... Your lip is trembling. I... It, it is cold. These are but the shadows of the things that have been. Do you remember this building? This school is, is not quite deserted, remember? A solitary child, neglected by his friends, is left here still. I know it. They went inside, the ghost and Scrooge, down the hall to a door at the back of the school. It opened before them and disclosed a bare, melancholy room, made bare still by the lines of plain rows of desks. At one of these desks, a lonely boy was reading near a feeble candle. No fire. Scrooge sat down upon the floor and wept to see his poor, forgotten self as he had used to be. Poor boy. I wish... What is the matter? Nothing. Nothing. There was a young boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something. That's all. Let us see another Christmas. The ghost smiled thoughtfully and waved its hand. Scrooge knew no more than you do, but he suddenly felt and found himself drawn into the room as he grew smaller and became his younger self. Now, within the vision, he felt that it was quite correct as the room became a little darker and a little more dirty. The panels shrunk, the windows cracked, fragments of plaster fell out of the ceiling. But how all this was brought about, and how Scrooge became his younger self, he did not know. Yet here he found himself, within his past, a boy, alone again, when all the other boys had gone home for the jolly holidays. He was not reading now, but walking up and down despairingly. Scrooge looked at the ghost, and with a mournful shaking of his head, glanced anxiously toward the door, knowing it would open even as a little girl much younger came darting in and put her arms around his waist. Ebenezer! Fanny! Oh, dear, dear brother, I have come to bring you home, dear brother. To bring you home, home, home! Home? Is it Fanny? Yes, home for Said yes, and sent you in a coach. 
to bring me home. You're to be a man. Never to come back here. We're to be together all Christmas long and have the merriest time in the world. You're quite a woman, little fan. The spirit touched him on the arm, and at once he became his older self again. Although they had but in that moment that touch left the school behind them, they were now in the busy thoroughfare of a city where shadowy passengers passed and repassed, where shadowy carts and coaches battled for the way, and all the strife and tumults of a real city were. She was such a merry child, little fan. Always a delicate creature, whom a breath might have withered. But she had a large heart. She had your right. I'll not gainsay it, spirit. God forbid. She died a woman. Yes. And had, as I think, um, children. One child. True. Your nephew. Fred. It was made plain enough by the dressing of the shops that here, too, it was Christmas time again. But it was evening, and the streets were lighted up. All the passers-by were in great spirits and shouted to each other until the broad street was so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. The spirit stopped and ushered Scrooge through a certain warehouse door. Do you know this warehouse, Scrooge? Know it? Wasn't I apprenticed here? Why, it's old Fessywig. Bless his heart. It's Fessywig alive again. Scrooge's great excitement came at the sight of an old gentleman in a Welsh wig, sitting behind such a high desk that if he had been two inches taller, he must have knocked his head against the ceiling. Old Fezziwig laid down his pen and looked up at the clock, which pointed to the hour of seven. He rubbed his hands, adjusted his capacious waistcoat, and laughed all over himself from his shoes <laughs> to his organ of benevolence. Yo-ho there, Ebenezer! Dick! Dick Wilkins. Bless me, yes. There he is. He was very much attached to me, was Dicky. <laughs> Poor Dicky. Dear, dear. Yo-ho, my boys. No more work tonight. We were just discussing Ebenezer's apprenticeship with Mr. Marley. Ah, yes. We're all sorry to see you leaving, my lad. My daughter Belle, to be sure. But remember, Ebenezer, if you're ever in need, do not hesitate to come to us. Come now, let's have the shutters up before a man can say Jack Robinson. Christmas Eve. Dick! Christmas Eve. Ebenezer. Clear away, my lads, and let's have lots of room here. Clear away. Marley and I became excellent men of business. It was a worthy partnership. Worthy? When your partner lay upon the point of death, your business kept the office open. You sat alone. Well done, lads. The floor is swept and watered. The lamps are trimmed. Heat more fuel on the fire, and this warehouse is as snug and warm and dry and bright a bar as a bar long, and as bright a ballroom as you would desire to see upon a winter's night. Mrs. Fezziwig, here comes the fiddler with his music book. Old Fezziwig stood out to dance with Mrs. Fezziwig. They shone in every part of the dance. A positive light appeared to issue from the Fezziwig's calves. There were more dances, and there were forfeits. And more dances, and there was cake, and there was wine, and there was a great roast, and there were mince pies and plenty of beer. Eventually the clock struck eleven, and this domestic ball broke up. 
Mr. and Mrs. Fezziwick took up their stations, one on either side of the door, and shaking hands with every person individually as he or she went out, wished him or her a Merry Christmas. When everybody had retired but the family and the two apprentices, they did the same to them, and then the cheerful voices died away. During the whole of this time, Scrooge's heart and soul were in the scene. It was not until now, when momentarily the bright faces of the Fezziwigs were turned from him, that he remembered the ghost and became conscious that it was looking full upon him, while the light upon its head burnt very clear. A small matter to make these silly folks so full of gratitude. Small? Why is it not? He has spent but a few hundred pounds of your mortal money. Three or four, perhaps. Is that so much that he deserves this praise? It isn't that. It isn't that, spirit. He had the power to render us happy or unhappy. To make our service light or burdensome. A pleasure or a toil. Well, say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. What's the matter? Nothing particular. Something, I think. No. No, I... Should like to be able to say a word or two to my clerk just now. That's all. My time grows short. Quick. This was not addressed to Scrooge or to anyone whom he could see, but it produced an immediate effect. <coughs> Again, for the second time since meeting this spirit, Scrooge became his former self. He was years older than the previous vision, a man in the prime of his life. His face had not the hard, rigid lines of later years, but it had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. Scrooge acted like a man out of his wits. He looked across the room and underwent the strangest agitation. He was not alone. There sat a fair young girl in a mourning dress, in whose eyes there were tears which sparkled into the light that shone out of the ghost of Christmas past. Spirit, no more. Conduct me home. One shadow more. No more. Spirit, remove me from this place. I told you these shadows are what they are. Do not blame me. It matters little. To you, very little. Another idol has displaced me. And if it can cheer and comfort you in time to come, as I would have tried to do, I have no just cause to grieve. What idol has displaced you? A golden one. This is the even-handing dealing of the world. There is nothing in which it is so hard as poverty. Yet there is nothing to professes to condemn with such severity as the pursuit of wealth. You fear too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond reproach. I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off one by one. Until the master passion, game, engrosses you, have I not? What then? Even if I have grown so much wiser, what then? I'm not changed towards you, am I? You are changed. Your own feeling tells you that you are not what you were. I am 
often and how keenly I have thought of this, I will not say. It is enough that I have thought of it and can release you. Have I ever sought release? In words? No, never. In what, then? In a changed nature, with another hope as its great end. In everything that made my love of any worth or value in your sight. If this engagement had never been between us, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? If you were free today, tomorrow, yesterday, can even I believe that you would choose me now? Choose this dowerless girl, or choosing her? Do I not know that your repentance and regret would surely follow? I do, and I release you with a full heart, for the love of him you once were. Spirit, I cannot bear it. Take me back. Leave me. Haunt me no more. The relentless ghost pinioned him with both its arms. In the struggle, if that can be called a struggle, in which the ghost, with no visible resistance of its own part, was undisturbed by any effort of its adversary, Scrooge observed that its light was burning high and bright. He was conscious of being exhausted and overcome by irresistible drowsiness, and further of being in his own bedroom. He gave the ghost a parting squeeze in which his hand relaxed, and had barely time to reel to bed before he sank into a heavy sleep. When the clock next proclaimed the hour, nothing came. And Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell had struck one. <clears throat> Awakening in the middle of a prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together, he felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time. Now, being prepared for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, when no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes. Ten minutes. A quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time he lay upon his bed. A blaze of ruddy light streamed upon it, and he was powerless to make out what it meant. At last, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room. This idea, taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. Come in! Come in and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas present. Look upon me. The spirit was clothed in one simple, deep green robe or mantle, bordered with white fur. Its feet were bare, and on its head it wore a holly wreath, set here and there with shining icicles. Its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, and its joyful air. Girded round its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it. You have never seen the like of me before. Never. But spirit, conduct me where you will. I went forth earlier on compulsion, and I learned a lesson which is working now. If you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. All vanished instantly. The room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, 
and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning. The weather was severe, and the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings. They were jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad. The spirit led him through the scores of by-streets, lanes, and nameless turnings, innumerable people flocking in their best clothes and gayest faces. It was a remarkable quality of the ghost that, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself any place with ease, and that now he stood beneath a low roof on the threshold of, a, of the door of Scrooge's cloak. He stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling. Think of that. Bob had but fifteen bob a week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Mrs. Cratchit, Bob's wife, dressed out but poorly in a twice-turned gown, laid the cloth on the table, assisted by Belinda, second of her daughters, while Master Peter Cratchit blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbled. Two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming, and danced about the table. What's ever gotten into your precious father, then? And your brother, Tiny Tim, and and Martha weren't as late last Christmas Day. Here's Martha, Mother. Oh, I bless my heart alive, my dear, how late you are. Oh, you had a deal of work to finish up last night, and clearing away this morning. Martha, well, well, never mind as long as you've come. I'll sit you down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm. Oh, Lord, bless me. No, no, there's Father coming. Hide, Martha, hide. Hello, Peter. Mother, Mar... Why, where's our Martha? Uh, not, not coming. Not coming? Not coming upon Christmas Day, my Father! dear... Father! Martha, you should have hid longer. Father was really disappointed. <laughs> my dear Martha, how I missed you. Father went down the side at Cornhill, Mother, 20 times. Bob! It's Christmas, dear. Oh, Peter, why don't you hustle your brothers and sisters off to the wash house? Yes, Mother. Oh, and how did little Tim behave? Oh, as good as gold and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful by sitting by himself so much, and he thinks the strangest things you've ever heard. He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made the lame beggars walk and the blind men see. Our Tim is growing strong and hearty. Oh, you mustn't think it, Robert, not on Christmas Day. You go wash, dear, sliding on the hill indeed. Oh, it would have been a very merry Christmas if you'd fallen and spit your head. Spirit, tell me if Tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor kitchen's corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, no, oh no, kind spirit. Say he will be spared. (laughs) If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race will find him here. He'd be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. If man you be, 
in heart, not adamant. Forbear that wicked cant until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live? What men shall die? It may be in the sight of heaven you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions, like that poor man's child. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke, and trembling, cast his eyes upon the ground. But he raised them speedily on hearing his own name. Mr. Scrooge, I give you Mr. Scrooge, the founder of this feast. <laughs> the founder of the feast, indeed. I wish I had him here. I give him a piece of my mind to feast upon. And I hope that he'd have a good appetite for it, too. My dear, the children, it's Christmas oh, Day. Well, it should be Christmas Day. I'm sure on which one drinks to the health of such an odious, stingy, hard, unfeeling man as Mr. Scrooge. You know he is, Robert. Nobody knows it better than you, poor fellow. My dear, Christmas Day. Well, I'll drink for his health, for your sake and the days, but not for his. Long life to him. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and he, he'll be very merry and very happy, I have no doubt. The children drank the toast after her. Tiny Tim drank it last of all. He sat very close to his father's side, upon his little stool beside the fire. At last the dinner was all done. The cloth was cleared, the hearth swept and the fire made up, and the chestnuts on the fire sputtered and cracked noisily. Then Bob proposed... A Merry Christmas to us all, my dears. God bless us. God bless us, everyone. There is nothing of high mark in this. The Cratchits were not a handsome family. They were not well-dressed. Their shoes were far from being waterproof. Their clothes were scanty. But they are happy, grateful, pleased with one another, and contented with the time. And when they faded and looked happier yet in the bright sprinklings of the spirit's torch at parting, Scrooge had his eye upon them, and especially on Tiny Tim until the last. And you've just heard uh, Act One of a recorded uh, dramatic reading before a live studio, a live not studio, live audience of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol that was recorded at the Spire on December 9th. And you are listening to CFRC 101.9 FM, streaming online, www.cfrc.ca. My name is Bruce. And coming up, here is Act 2, again, of a two-act adaptation of a dramatic uh, reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, again, as performed by Peter Aston, Michelle Mellon, Donald Mitchell, William Mitchell, Adele Mitchell, Wendy Luella Perkins, and Charlie Walker. And uh, that will be followed in this uh, second hour by uh, just a short instrumental piece uh, recorded by Michael Castiles that I thought would fit, but I'll talk more about that. Here again is Act Two.
they stood upon a bleak and deserted moor where the monstrous masses of rude stone were cast about. A light shone from the window of a hut, and they passed through a wall of mud and stone where a voice that seldom rose above the howling of the wind was singing a Christmas song. It had been a very old song when Scrooge was a boy, and from time to time the old man and woman and their children all joined in the chorus. The spirit did not tarry here, but bade Scrooge hold his robe, and passing on above a moor sped, whither? To see? The ghost sped on, above the black and heavy sea, on, on until, while listening to the moaning of the wind and thinking, it was a great surprise to Scrooge to hear a hearty laugh. <laughs> it was a much greater surprise to Scrooge to recognize it as his own nephew's and to find himself in a bright, dry, gleaming room. <laughs> he said that Christmas was a humbug as I live, and he believed it, too. Oh, more shame <laughs> for him, Fred. <laughs> oh, he's a comical old fellow. That's the truth, and not so pleasant as he might be. However, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. I'm sure he is very rich, Fred. At least you always tell me so. What of that, my dear? I mean, his wealth is of no use to him. He doesn't do any good with it. He doesn't make himself comfortable with it. He hasn't the satisfaction of <laughs> that he's ever going to benefit us with it. Well, I have no patience with him. Oh, I have. I'm sorry for him. I couldn't be angrier with him if I tried who suffers by his ill wills himself, always? He takes it into his head to dislike us, and he won't come to dine with us. <clears throat> well, what's the consequence? He doesn't lose much of a dinner. What do you say, Topper? <laughs> no, never mind what Topper says. All right, Topper indeed thinks he does miss a good dinner. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. <laughs> do go on, Fred. He never finishes what he begins to say. He is such a ridiculous fellow. <laughs> I was only going to say that the consequence of his taking a dislike to us and not making merry with us is, as I think, that he loses some pleasant moments, which could do him no harm. And I mean to give him the same chance every year, whether he likes it or not, for I pity him. He may rail at Christmas till he dies, but he can't help thinking better of it. I defy him. If he finds me going there in good temper year after year and saying, Uncle Scrooge, how are you? If it, I mean, if it just puts him in the vein to leave his poor clerk 50 pounds, well, that's something. And I think I shook him yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it was their turn to laugh now at the notion of his shaking Scrooge. But being thoroughly good-natured and not much caring what they laughed at, he encouraged them in their merriment and passed the bottle joyously. <laughs> he has given us plenty of merriment, I am sure, and it would be ungrateful not to drink his health. Here is a glass of mulled wine ready to our hand at the moment. A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to the old man wherever he is. He wouldn't take it from me, but may he have it nonetheless. Uncle Scrooge. They had some music, but they didn't devote the whole evening to music. 
After a while, they played at how, when, and where. For it is good to be children sometimes, and never better, at Christmas. There might have been twenty people there, young and old, but they all played, and so did Scrooge, though his voice made no sound in their ears. The ghost was greatly pleased to find him in this mood, and looked upon him with such favor that Scrooge begged like a boy to be allowed to stay until the guests departed. But this, the spirit said, could not be done. Much they saw, and far they went, and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. It was a long night, if it were only a night. But Scrooge had his doubts of this, because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older. Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it. Suddenly, as they stood together in an open place, the clock struck the hour of three. As the last stroke ceased to vibrate, Scrooge looked about him for the ghost of Christmas present and saw it not. He then remembered the prediction of old Jacob Marley and lifted up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist on the ground towards him. Slowly, gravely, silently approached, difficult to detach from the surrounding night and darkness. When it came near him, Scrooge bent down upon his knee. For in the air through which this spirit moved, it seemed to scatter gloom and mystery. I am in the presence of the ghost of Christmas yet to come. It was shrouded in a deep black garment which concealed its head, its face, its form, and left nothing of it visible save one outstretched hand. He knew no more, for the spirit gave him no reply. Ghost of the future, I fear you more than any specter I have seen. But as I know your purpose is to do me good, and as I hope to live to be another man from what I was, I am prepared to bear you company, and do it with a thankful heart. Will you not speak to me? It neither spoke nor moved. The hand was pointed straight out before them. Lead on. Lead on. The night is waning fast, and it is precious time to me. I know. Lead on, spirit. The phantom moved away as it had come towards him. Scrooge followed in the shadow of its dress, which bore him up, he thought, and carried him along. They scarcely seemed to enter the city, for the city rather seemed to spring up about them. But there they were, in the heart of it, on the exchange amongst the business people. The spirit stopped beside one little knot of wealthy merchants. Observing that the hand was pointed to them, Scrooge advanced to listen to their talk. Nope. I don't know much about it either way. Only know he's dead. Well, old Scratch has got his own last, eh? When did he die? Uh, last night, I believe. Why, what was the matter with him? I thought he'd never <laughs> die. <laughs> what has he done with his money? Haven't heard. Left it to his company, perhaps. Hasn't left it to me, that's all I know. <laughs> Scrooge was, at first, inclined to be surprised that the spirit should attach importance to conversation so trivial. 
But feeling assured that they must have some hidden purpose, he set himself to consider what it was likely to be. He looked about in that very place for his own image. But another man stood in his accustomed corner, and though the clock pointed to his usual time of day for being there, he saw no likeness of himself among the multitudes that poured in through the porch. They left the busy scene and went into an obscure part of the town, to a low brad beetling shop where iron, old rags, bottles, bones, and greasy offal were brought. A gray-haired rascal, nearly seventy years of age, sat smoking his pipe. Scrooge and the Phantom came into the presence of this man, just as a woman, with a heavy bundle slunk into the shop. But she had scarcely entered when another woman, similarly laden, came in too, and she was closely followed by a man in faded black. Ah, oh, yeah, let the charwoman alone to be the first, let the laundress alone to be the second, and let the undertaker's man alone to be the third. Look here, old Joe. Here's a chance. If we have an all free met here without me in it... You couldn't have met in a better place. Come into the parlor. You were made free of it long ago, you know. And the other two ain't strangers. Come into the parlor. Come into the parlor. What odds, then? What odds, old Joe? Every person has a right to take care of themselves. He always did. That's true indeed. And no man more so. Why then don't stand staring at as if you was afraid, woman? Who's the wiser? We're not going to pick holes in each other's coats, I suppose. <laughs> very well, very well, then. That's enough. Who's the worst for a loss of a few things like these? <laughs> uh, not a dead man, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> if he wanted to keep him after he was dead. Wicked old screw. Well, why wasn't he natural in his lifetime? If he had been, he'd have had somebody to look after him when he was struck with death, instead of lying there gasping out his last there alone by himself. It's the truest word that was ever spoken. It's a judgment on him. <laughs> well, I wish it'd been a little heavier judgment, and it should have been made you depend upon it if I could have laid my hands on anything else. Open that bundle, old Joe, and let me know the value of it. Heavy roll. What you call this, uh, dark stuff? Bed curtains? Ah, bed curtains! You don't mean to say that you took him, took them off, trimmings and all, with him lying there? Yes, I do. Well, why not, Joe? Don't drop oil on the blankets now. His blankets? Whose else do you think? He isn't likely to take cold without him, I dare say. <laughs> I hope he didn't die of anything catching, eh? Oh, don't you be afraid of that. So fond of his company that I'd loiter about him if he did. Ah, you may look through that shirt till your eyes ache, but you won't find a hole in it nor a threadbare place. It's the best he had, and a fine one too. Somebody was fool enough to put it on him to be buried in, to be sure. <laughs> They'd have wasted it, but I took it off again. <laughs> Spirit, I see, I see. The case of this unhappy man might be mine own. My life tends that way now. Merciful heaven. What is this? The scene had changed, and now he almost touched the bare, uncurtained bed. And on it, beneath a ragged sheet, there lay a something covered up, which, in the pale light, announced itself. 
plundered and bereft, unwatched, unwept, uncared for, was the body of a man. The cover of it was so carelessly adjusted that the slightest raising of it, the motion of a finger on Scrooge's part, would have disclosed the face. The ghost pointed with an unmoved finger to the head. I understand you, and would do it if I could. But I have not the power. I have not the power in this fearful place. Let us go and leave this dark chamber and see some tenderness connected with the death. I shall not leave this lesson. Trust me. Hush, my baby. Lie still and slumber. Holy angels guard thy bed. Heavenly blessings without number. Gently falling on thy head. The ghost conducted him to poor Bald Cratchit's house. The dwelling he had visited before, and found the mother and the children seated around the fire. Quiet. Very quiet. The noisy little Cratchits were as still as statues in one corner, and they sat looking up at Mother, who softly sang, but surely she was very quiet. There's Father at the door. Mrs. Cratchit hurried out to meet him, and little Bob and his comforter, he had need of it, poor fellow, came in. His tea was ready for him on the hob, and they all tried who should help him to it most. Then the two young Cratchits got up on his knees and laid each child a little cheek against his face. Bob was very cheerful with them and spoke pleasantly to all the family of the work to be done before Sunday. Sunday. You, you went today then, Robert? Yes, my dear. I wish you could have gone. It would have done you good to see how green a place it is. But you'll see it often. I promised him that I'd walk there on Sunday. My little child, my, my, my little child. He broke down all at once. He couldn't help it. He left the room and went upstairs into the room above, which was lighted cheerfully and hung with Christmas. When he had thought a little and composed himself, Reconciled to what had happened, he went down again. They drew about the fire and talked, and Bob told them of the extraordinary kindness of Mr. Scrooge's nephew. I've scarcely seen him once, and yet, meeting me in the street today, he saw I looked uh, just a little down, you know, and he inquired what had happened to cause me distress. On which, for he's the most pleasant-spoken gentleman you've ever heard, I told him. I'm heartily sorry for it, Mr. Cratchit, he said, and heartily sorry for your good wife. By the by, how he ever knew that, I don't know. Who well, knew what, my dear? Well, that you were a good wife. Everybody knows that. Very well observed, my boy. I hope they do. Heartily, he said, for your good wife. If I can be of service to you in any way, he said, giving me his card, that's where I live. Pray, come to me. Now, it wasn't for the sake of anything he might be able to do for us, so much as for his kind way. But this was quite delightful. It really seemed as if he'd known our tiny Tim and felt with us. I'm sure he's a good soul. 
You'd be sure of it, my dear, if you saw and spoke to him. I shouldn't be at all surprised, mark what I say, if he got Peter a better situation. Mm -hmm. Only he'd have, Mother. It's just as likely as not one of these days, though there's plenty of time for that, my dear. But however, and when we part from one another, I'm sure we will none of us forget poor tiny Tim, shall we? Or this first parting that there was among us. No, never. Spectre, something informs me that our parting moment is at hand. I know it, but I know not how. Tell me what man that was whom we saw lying dead. The ghost of Christmas yet to come conveyed him as before. Though at a different time, he thought, indeed, there seemed no order in these latter visions, save that they were in the future. The spirit did not stay for anything, but went straight on until they reached an iron gate. A churchyard. Here, then, the wretched man whose name he had now to learn lay underneath the ground. The spirit stood among the graves and pointed down to one. Before I draw nearer to that stone to which you point, answer me one question. Are these the shadows of the things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? Men's courses will foreshadow certain ends, to which, if persevered in, they must lead. But if the courses be departed from, the ends will change. Say it is thus with what you show me. The spirit was immovable as ever. Scrooge crept towards it, trembling as he went, and following the finger, read upon the stone of the ne neglected grave his own name, Ebenezer Scrooge. Am I that man who lay upon the bed? Oh no, spirit, oh no, no, spirit, hear me. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Why show me this if I am past all hope? Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows that you have shown me by an altered self. For the first time the kind hand faltered. Scrooge caught the spectral hand. It sought to free itself, but he was strong in his entreaty and detained it. The spirit stronger yet repulsed him. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will not shut out the lessons that you teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Holding up his hands in a last prayer to have his fate reversed, he saw an alteration in the phantom's hood and dress. It shrunk, collapsed, and dwindled down into a bedpost. Yes, and the bedpost was his own. The bed was his own. The room was his own. Best and happiest of all, the time before him was his own to make amends in. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. Oh, Jacob Marley, heaven and the Christmas time be praised. I say it on my knees, oh, Jacob, on my knees. The bed curtains are not torn down. They're not torn down. 
rings and all. They are here. I am here. The shadows of things that would have been may be dispelled. They will be. I know they will. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I'm as happy as an angel. I'm as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. A merry Christmas to everybody. And a happy new year to the whole world. Hello there. Whoop. Hello. There's the saucepan that the gruel was in. And there's the door by which the ghost of Jacob Marley entered. And there's the corner where the ghost of Christmas Present sat. And there's the window where I saw the wandering spirits. It's all right. It's all true. It all happened. <laughs> I don't know what day of the month it is. I don't know how long I've been among the spirits. I don't know anything. <laughs> I'm quite a baby. Oh, never mind, I don't care. I'd rather be a baby. Hello, whoop, hello there. He was checked in his transports by the churches ringing out the lustiest peals he had ever heard. Running to the window, he opened it and put out his head. No fog, no mist. Clear, bright, stirring, golden sunlight. Scrooge called downward to a boy in Sunday clothes. What's today? What's today, my fine fellow? Today? What Christmas Day? It's Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits have done it all in one night. They can do anything they like. Of course they can. Of course they can. Hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poachers in the next street but one at the corner? I should hope I did. An intelligent boy. Remarkable boy. Do you know if they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging up there? Not the little prize turkey. The big one. What? The one as big as me? What a delightful boy. It's a pleasure to talk to him. Yes, my buck. It's hanging there now. Is it? Go buy it. Humbug. No. No, 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 no. I'm in earnest. Go buy it and tell them to bring it here. That I may be... Give them directions where to take it. Now come back with the man, and I'll give you a shilling. Come back with him in five minutes, and I'll give you half a crown. <laughs> the boy's off like a shot. I'll send it to Bob Cratchit's. He shan't know who sends it. And it's quite the size of Tiny Tim. Joe Miller never made such a joke as sending it to Bob's will be. Scrooge dressed himself all in his best and at last got out into the streets. The people were by this time pouring forth, as he had seen them with the ghost of Christmas present, and walking with his hands behind him, Scrooge regarded everyone with a delighted smile. He looked so irresistibly pleasant in a word that three or four good-humoured fellows said, Good morning, sir. A Merry Christmas to you. And Scrooge said often afterwards, that of all the blithe sounds he had ever heard, those were the blithest in his ears. In the afternoon, he turned his steps towards his nephew's house. He passed the door a dozen times before he had the courage to go up and knock. But he made a dash and did it. Fred, why bless my soul, who is that? It is I, your Uncle Scrooge. I have come to dinner. Will you let me in, Fred? <laughs> let him in? It is a mercy he didn't shake his arm off. 
He was at home in five minutes. Nothing could be heartier. His niece looked just the same. So did everyone when they came. Wonderful party, wonderful games, wonderful unanimity, wonderful happiness. But Scrooge was early at the office the next morning. Oh, he was early there. If he could only be there first and catch Bob Cratchit coming late, that was the thing he'd set his heart upon. And he did it. Yes, he did. The clock struck nine. No Bob. A quarter past. No Bob. Bob was full 18 minutes and a half behind his time. Scrooge sat with his door wide open that he might see him come into the tank. Bob's hat was off before he opened the door. His comforter, too. He was on his stool in a jiffy, driving away with his pen as if he were trying to overtake nine o'clock. Hello. What do you mean by coming here at this time of day? I'm very sorry, sir. I'm behind my time. You are? Oh, yes, I think you are. Step this way, if you please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday, sir. Now, I'll tell you what, my friend. I'm not going to stand this sort of thing any longer. And therefore... And therefore, I am about to raise your salary. Bob trembled, and got a little nearer to the ruler with a momentary idea of knocking Scrooge down with it, holding him and calling to the people in the court for help in a straight waistcoat. A merry Christmas, Bob. A merrier Christmas, Bob, my good fellow, than I have given you for many a year. I'll raise your salary and endeavor to assist your struggling family. And we will discuss your affairs this very afternoon over a Christmas bowl of smoking bishop. Now, make up the fires and buy another coal scuttle before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Scrooge was better than his word. He did it all and infinitely more. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man, as the good old city knew. Or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him. But he let them laugh, and little heeded them. His own heart laughed. And that was quite enough for him. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed a knowledge. <coughs> and may that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed... God bless us, everyone. We wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin, good tidings for Christmas and a Happy
And you just heard the second act of a two-act adaptation of a dramatic reading by Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, again as performed by Peter Aston, Michelle Mellon, Donald Mitchell, William Mitchell, Adele Mitchell, Wendy Luella Perkins, and Charlie Walker. And that was followed by a short original instrumental piece called Snowfall White Noise. Uh, recorded by Kingston's own Michael Castiles, a guy of many hats and a good friend, a poet, author, musician, composer, songwriter, publisher, among them. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.